Well, good evening. It is good to see everybody here. I appreciate your presence, and I would encourage you to take out a Bible, and if you want to, you can start turning over to Matthew chapter 27. That's where we're going to be starting here in just a second. Have you... I'm going to ask you a question, and and I will give you an opportunity for audience participation. I would like to see a show of hands. Have you ever been talking to somebody about Christianity and about a need to become a Christian? And we talk about the ways to become a Christian, and you get to the step where you talk about baptism and you hear the phrase, but what about the thief on the cross? Raise of hands. How many have ever heard that phrase? Yeah, everybody. And, And I think that the denominational world thinks that we didn't know he was in there. But... I love, I love talking about the thief on the cross. What I can't stand is that it's been devolved to just a discussion about baptism. And so we're going to talk about the thief on the cross this evening. And we're going to talk about the subject of baptism. But this is really the real lessons on the thief on the cross. So we're going to get down to what we're really supposed to learn about him rather than just the subject of baptism. But why don't we become experts on the subject here first? So let's read Matthew chapter 27, verse 38 through 44. And then we'll go over to Mark, and then we'll go over to Luke, and then we will have read everything there is to know about the thief on the cross, and we'll all be equal experts on him. So starting off, verse 38, at that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Now we go over to Mark chapter 15 and we're reading it because... We want to be experts. We want to read everything there is, but it's going to sound oh so familiar. It is almost the exact same thing as what we saw there in Matthew 27. But Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 27, says, They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And he was numbered with transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads, and saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. And then when we get to Luke, 
It is in Luke that we see things changed, and we see the difference, and we see more detail. So Luke chapter 23 now, verses 39 through 43. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. You might notice that there was no subject in there, no discussion whatsoever about baptism, yet somehow whenever we talk about the thief on the cross, that's the subject. What about the thief on the cross? Well, the question is, can you be saved without baptism? That's the first thing we're going to look at. We actually have five points, and we're going to ignore the first one because I just don't like it. But we're going to talk about saved without baptism. The question is, can a person be saved without baptism? I caused, I think, an elder a heart attack because my answer to that while standing before this large audience was absolutely he is proof that you can be saved without baptism. It's odd that you picked him. I mean, there are a lot of other people who've been saved without baptism. Noah, Abraham, Moses. There's a whole bunch of people that have been saved without baptism. I submit to you, we're asking the wrong question. It's the wrong question. It's a horrible argument, and I don't say that to be offensive. But I think if we can pull ourselves away from this particular scenario where baptism is such a heated subject, if we could pull ourselves away from that and look at other people in other scenarios, we would never, ever allow this argument. Noah was not required to be baptized. God came to Noah and told Noah, you have to build an ark. And I believe all of us have an understanding that it was kind of important for Noah to build that ark, right? If he did not build that ark, he does not survive the flood. He has to build the ark. And that was a tremendous thing that was asked of him. It took him over a hundred years to build the ark. But sometime later, there's Abraham. And God at one moment is testing Abraham's faith, and we've all recognized from last night's lesson, if you were here, there are three attributes that are really important in our relationship with God, and that first one is faith, and it is faith that is being tested. Abraham needs to pass this test, and the test is this, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, whom you love, and I want you to sacrifice him. How much sense would it make for Abraham to say, but what about Noah? Noah was not asked to sacrifice his son, so I should not be forced to ask 
uh, my son. I tell you what, God, what I will do is I will build you an ark. That's a bad argument, isn't it? God has specifically told Abraham what he wants. Well, then sometime later, there's a man named Moses. And God comes to Moses and tells Moses, you are going to lead my people out of Egypt. You are going to stand before Pharaoh. And Moses knows these people, and he knows they're frustrating. What would have happened if he said, but what about Abraham? And what about Noah? Neither of them had to do this. In fact, imagine if Moses said, you know, God, I'm not actually all that thrilled with my first son. I think I will sacrifice him to you, since that's what you asked Abraham to do. It's a ridiculous argument. But isn't that the argument? The question is not, what about the thief on the cross? The question is, what about you? That's the question. So if we go over to Matthew chapter 28, now I understand that this is close. This is very close to the time of the thief on the cross, but it is afterwards. The very last things that Jesus says in the gospel of Matthew, after the thief on the cross, after Jesus dies, after he's buried, after he's resurrected, after he spends some time with his disciples, when he is ascending to heaven, he says to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus has just said, I have all authority. I make the rules. Go and baptize people. What if Peter had just said, but what about the thief on the cross right then? Would that have made any sense? And then you go over to Acts chapter 2, and now Peter is standing before the people of Israel. He is standing before people who very well might have heard Jesus talking to the thief on the cross. And he's delivering the first gospel sermon in which they now understand that Jesus has died. He has been resurrected. He has sent the Holy Spirit. They have seen the evidence of it. They come to the realization they have murdered the Son of God. They have rejected the plan of God. It says in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you were in that audience and you heard Peter say, let each one of you be baptized, who would have allowed the argument, but what about the thief on the cross? It doesn't matter. What matters is what you've been asked to do. That's the right question. And if you look over at 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21, there's two words in there that are of great significance. Obviously, there's many more words than that. 
But it says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, you might want to emphasize that word saves, and that obviously is important. Here's, here's an action. Here's something that's about our salvation. We probably don't want to ignore that, but that's not the one of the words I want to focus on. Now and you. You. The question is not about the thief on the cross. The question is about you. What does God ask you to do? And now baptism saves you. And when God tells you that, don't argue. What about Noah? What about Abraham? What about Moses? What about the thief on the cross? Or what about anybody else? This is what God's told you. And he says now because it wasn't always now. There used to be a then. And while I know it's confusing, the thief on the cross comes very close to the now time period. He's in the then. We learn in Romans chapter 6 that baptism is into the death of Jesus and the resurrection, neither which has occurred while Jesus is talking to the thief on the cross. It's a bad argument. And I think if we step away from it and we look at it from Abraham's perspective or Moses' perspective, we would see that it's a bad argument. And I recognize that it probably in this audience, this is not many people that are making that argument. However, you have all raised your hand. You all have to deal with people. Help them to see the right argument. Help them to see that really what matters is to ask what God has asked of you, not someone else. But I want to submit to you, and I'll admit, this is just an opinion. and You're welcome to ignore it. But I personally believe that while Luke was writing this down and he starts writing about the thief on the cross, he doesn't snicker. <laughs> They're going to talk about baptism for so long after this. I don't think that's why he put it there. It's not for us to discuss about baptism. It's for us to talk about the thief and Jesus on the cross. So what can we learn about the thief on the cross. Well, yes, we can talk about saved without baptism, but no. What I see is a lesson about change. I know that you were able to see this when we read Matthew and Mark and then we read Luke. There is a very big difference between those passages, is there not? Matthew and Mark portray Jesus being uh, crucified with a, a thief on his right and a thief on his left, and it describes them both mocking him. Luke then describes one of them mocking him and one of them not. And I only know of two ways to resolve that issue. One is that occasionally within scriptures, we have an accommodative language. We exaggerate about circumstances. And you can see this in Luke. Luke is familiar with this. In Luke chapter 22, In Luke chapter 22, verse 66, it says, When it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, now go down to verse 70, they all said, you are, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. 
Then they said, what further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And so what we see is Jesus before the council and the whole council, all of them is making the accusation. All of them is bringing him before Pilate. All of them are opposed to Jesus. Jesus. But when you get to Luke chapter 23 and verse 50, it says, A man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action. Was it all of them? No. I asked earlier, who, who, who is heard, but what about the thief on the cross? And I said, everybody raised their hand. But I doubt that's true. There's probably some people in here who did not raise their hand, but I looked out and I saw the general sense, and it seemed like there were a lot more hands than no hands. I saw hands. I said, everybody does this. We do this all the time. I just did it in the last sentence. We don't do this all the time, but we accept this sort of language. However, would it not be a little strange to see two people and one person is mocking Jesus and the other is doing the exact opposite and to say they were both, they were all hurling abuse at him. I accept that the Bible does that sometimes. I accept that we do that sometimes. It seems a little weird in this case. Which means the only other way I can explain this is the thief on the cross starts off mocking Jesus and ends praising him. And I stop and I think, well, why would he do such a thing? And I don't know, that when you get to the, the, the events on the cross, it's hard to really de determine the exact chronology of what happened when. So I don't know, but maybe it was the moment when the world got dark and the sun was blocked, and he suddenly realized, this man next to me is no man, and was just a few steps ahead of the Roman centurion, who later on is going to say, truly, this is the Son of God. Or maybe, maybe it was the moment when he heard this man who was being crucified, knew a few things about him, but heard this man being crucified, knew the pain this man was going through, and heard him say, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. I don't know. But I know this. Men can change. And we can change quickly and in surprising ways. And if I'm wrong about this with the thief on the cross, he's not the only one who presents evidence for this. We also know about Paul, and Paul changed. Paul is on the road to Damascus. He is going as the ultimate enemy of Christianity. He is the number one persecutor. He's the guy who says, I'm going to go out and snuff them out of the world. I will go wherever they go, and I will destroy them. And by the time he gets to Damascus, he's joined them. Or the people in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, it talks about these various attributes of, of, of unrighteousness that will keep us out of the kingdom. And then he says in verse 11, and such were some of you, past tense. People change. 
And that's good news. It's good news for ourselves. It means that if you're caught up with something and you are struggling, you can change. And it's good news for all of us who have family members who aren't where they ought to be. Imagine what it was like, I don't know, I don't know if there was like a section there in front of the cross. All we focus on is Jesus. He's the center. He's everything. But you know what? There's somebody's son who's on the cross. And it's not just Mary. This thief, he's got parents. And they may have thought that there would never be a change with him. No difference. But there at the end, with his final breaths, he changed. So friends, give people the chance and don't lose hope. People can change. That's not the only lesson I learned from him. I also see a picture in him of the people that are welcomed to heaven. I'll admit, I'm going to give you an opinion again, and maybe you'll have your own. I'm curious what it is. But when Jesus is on the cross, and the thief says those things to Jesus that he does, do you get the sense that Jesus then turns and is like, oh, no, you said the magic phrase, and now I have to let you in heaven. Is that the attitude you get from Jesus there? That he regrets this moment? That he's upset? That he's telling this person, today you will be with me in paradise. That's not how I read it. That's not how I see it. And what I see then with the thief on the cross is a picture of the type of people that are welcomed to heaven. And the only thing we know about him the entirety of his life has been boiled down to one word, thief. He will admit that he has a criminal record. And what we saw was potentially he previously was mocking Jesus. This is a difficult thing for some Christians to accept. We talk about being saved by grace, but we inwardly believe that we're saved by works. I know that's true because it's what we act like. And what I mean by that is this. People struggle with the concept that there are going to be people in heaven who have done far fewer good deeds than some people in hell. The reason we struggle with that is we're thinking about works. We're thinking about, here's this person who was an amazing humanitarian, who went out and made sure that the poor had food, who did such good things but did not have Christ. They were never, ever good enough. And despite all of the good things that they've done, and we'll all agree they were good, and we'll all agree it's a tragedy 
But if you don't have Christ, you don't go to heaven. And here we have a thief. Was he a Bible class teacher? Did he lead the synagogue? Was he a good religious person? The only thing we know about him, the only thing that sums up his life is he's a thief, and yet he's in heaven. There are going to be people in heaven who have not done amazing, tremendous, righteous deeds. And then there are going to be people in hell who have. There are going to be people in heaven who have done far more wicked deeds than some of the people in hell. Because we are not saved by deeds. We're saved by Jesus. And Jesus has shown us the type of person He will welcome to heaven. Today you will be with me in paradise. Additionally, what I see from the thief is a very important lesson to go along with what we talked about last night. What I see is faith. Last night we talked about the importance of faith. You cannot please God without faith. We talked about how faith will overcome wickedness. Faith will overcome the sins that we've committed. And we looked at Hebrews chapter 11. But what we never really did was dig into what that faith looks like. The thief on the cross is what that faith looks like. He's not the ultimate picture. He's not the only picture. But he is a significant picture of what saving faith looks like. Because he is not saved because he was baptized. He is not saved because of his good deeds. The only thing I can really say about him is that he had faith. And I see it in four ways. People get interesting pictures of heaven. Um, I don't know where it came from, but people get this idea of when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask and we get one question, right? Where'd that come from? I have no idea. But if we can go meet people, obviously we want to meet God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And it's just astounding that that's even an option. And I'm sure many people would put on their high list, you know, I want to go meet Moses or Abraham or Paul. This is the guy I want to meet. And I don't know what kind of bodies we'll have. I don't know what kind of behaviors we'll have. But however it will relate to heaven to today, I want to shake his hand. And I want to say thank you. You know what his saving faith looked like? He took an unpopular stand. For one moment, one crucial moment in the history of mankind, he stood alone in support of Jesus. While everybody else is punching him and spitting on him and mocking him and cursing him, 
while even a thief on the cross with his last breaths would waste them to mock Jesus, nobody, no man is standing up and saying, stop. Except for him. Jesus is my Lord, my master. And as amazing as this is, he's my friend. And he was hurting. And one man stood up for him. And I sure would like to say thank you. Saving faith, what God wants to see within us, is to believe when no one else does. Saving faith is a faith that takes ownership of sins. Did you notice how he did that? How he becomes sort of like the prodigal son, not denying, but acknowledging his sins. He says in verse 40, the other answered and rebuking him said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. He sounds a little bit like the prodigal son. I'm no longer worthy. I have sinned in the sight of heaven and in the sight of you. He accepts that he deserves this. He deserves crucifixion. And that's a kind of faith. It's a kind of humility that makes a difference on one's soul and one's relationship with God. But I believe there's something more here. I'm giving you a lot of my opinions, and of course, I'll try to support them, and I want to make sure you know when there are my opinions. So here's another opinion. I believe that the thief on the cross makes the single greatest statement of faith in the Bible. Now, you're welcome to disagree with that, but I want to show you why I believe it. We have to see the world from his perspective. He's on the cross. And he looks next to him. What does he see? Blood. A lot of blood. Gushing from his head. From his hands. From his feet. And depending on how they're lined up, it may be that he sees his back that has been shredded and is again bleeding. He can hear, he can hear a man dying. He can hear as time is going on, he's getting weaker and weaker. And if he looks forward just a little bit, what he sees is guards, Roman guards, and nobody attacking. He does not look across the street. He does not look on the hill and see hundreds of disciples gathering together, swords in hand, ready to charge and risk their life and do whatever for their Savior. 
They have all fled, all except for one who stands with the women. What he sees is a man who's been conquered, defeated, and dying. But that's not what he saw. Because what he says is, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. He saw a king who would rule despite what was in front of him. And friends, that's saving faith. Faith that in a circumstance in which it seems impossible for us to win, the Egyptian army is right upon us. There's no way we can win. Oh, yes, there is. If you believe in God, the waters can part and you can be victorious. And that whole army can be conquered. We're told by so many people, oh, everything is the evolution that, the, that God didn't create. It's ridiculous to believe in God. God's looking for people who will believe in Him anyway. Even when all the world tells us it's ridiculous. Over and over again, whatever it is within Scripture, whatever it is that makes us stand alone, whatever it is that may seem like it's not reasonable to believe like in a young earth, like the thought that God created everything in six days, we're told that's ridiculous. And God's looking for people who say, but I believe it anyway, because He said it. And I believe Him. That's saving faith. And saving faith is the faith that focuses on what really matters. Both the thieves make a request, and they really illustrate a big difference. You notice the first thief in verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. What's he asking for? Get me off the cross. Perfectly reasonable thing. I mean, if Jesus is the Christ, it makes sense. Jesus, get yourself off the cross, and while you're at it, ah, I want off too. That makes sense. Now you have the other thief on the cross, the one we're focused on, and now he believes Jesus is the Christ. He believes he is the king, and he will rule, but he doesn't ask to get off the cross. He asks to be remembered in the kingdom. He asks for something future, something better, something spiritual. And I'm not saying that it is wrong for us to pray for daily food and it is, that it's wrong for us to pray about the things that are really worrying us in this life and the physical things. I'm not saying it's wrong to do that, but I'm saying the faith that saves is focused not on these things, but on the spiritual things, the things that really matter about our eternal home, our eternal relationship with God. The thief that asked to get off the cross died on the cross wrong with God. The thief that asked to be remembered in the kingdom died on the cross right with God. Faith that focuses on the spiritual problem and the spiritual promises and the spiritual rewards, that's the faith that matters. And the last thing I want to observe about the thief on the cross is this beautiful response that Jesus gives to him. 
And it tells us that our spiritual reward may not be very far off. I feel like that thief's life has been such a waste that it, up to that moment, it feels like he should look back at his life with regret. Certainly you would think he would while he is dying in a horrible way. Think this was a mistake. But doesn't everything change? Doesn't everything change for him when Jesus says, today you shall be with me in paradise? I can't help but notice that word, today. Doesn't take away the pain. Doesn't take away the inevitable outcome. He's going to die. It hurts. And it's awful, but it's almost over. You're almost done. And what comes next is paradise. Friends, I don't know. I don't know how long we have. I don't know that we can use the word today, perhaps for some. Today may be our last day, and these are final breaths. We've seen so often and been reminded how easy it is for people to die suddenly. But even if it's not today, there's another word we can use. And because of the brevity of life, it will always be true. Soon. Soon, you'll be with me in paradise. It's almost over. The pain will come to an end. And what comes next? Well, that's paradise. So it kind of bugs me when we bring up the thief on the cross and all we can talk about is baptism, whether it's necessary. This is a beautiful, beautiful account of a sinner being saved giving hope to you and to me. Let's not lose sight of it. Let's be encouraged by it. And let's follow that example of faith because that's the faith that saves. Now, if you are not a Christian, we encourage you to become one tonight, to be baptized into Christ as we see within Scriptures, as was commanded of you for the forgiveness of your sins, for your salvation. That's right in front of you. Why say no to that? Why not be baptized tonight and begin this journey with us, this journey towards heaven as a child of God? If you're a Christian and you have fallen away, you can change. But we're running out of time. Don't wait any longer. We beg you to come back. Won't you come as we stand and as we sing?